Worship the real God. He and only He is fully in control. Peace to you, friends and members. And again, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. My name is Luke. For any visitors new here today, we do welcome you. Uh, we are glad to be able to gather and worship God on Christmas Day, a day to remind us that the eternal Holy God came to be born as a baby to save his people. Last week, we had to cancel service because many of us caught COVID. So it is good to see many of you feeling a lot better. Um, by my last count, over 70% of us have already gotten COVID, so we are approaching her immunity. I'm not sure why we are the first wave of people to, to get COVID, but now we are getting better. Let's take the opportunity to care for those around us that are getting sick. I know some of us have wondered if this day when we are no longer restricted by health code and centralized quarantine would, would ever come. It seemed like the early success of controlling the original variant of COVID has caused a fixation on control. But how much can we control nature? I know I I have wondered, you know, what, what is the exit strategy to these control measures? You know, when the new COVID variant like the Omicron became so contagious, it required even more efforts and, and resources to control it. We all know our year has been defined by this escalation of efforts known as lockdowns, mass testing, centralized, quarantine. In the midst of it, I know I have wondered, I've wondered, you know, it, will, will this ever end? You know, the, the phrase was right? or the normalizing of, of this testing to be a daily testing. And it has become our daily routine to be, to be tracked. But this all changed. It all changed in an instant, right? Seemingly on December 7th. Seemingly, all of a sudden, after three years of dynamic zero COVID, this, this announcement was made. And, and before any of us can even react, health code is not needed. Centralized quarantine is no more. COVID has swept through our, our congregation. Have you thought, what are we supposed to take out of this sudden change? What are we supposed to learn out of this seemingly sudden loss of control? There are probably many lessons we can learn from this, but, but I believe God have an important lesson for us today. It is the same lesson he tried to teach the nation through Israel in the Old Testament. And that lesson is worship the real God. He and only he is fully in control. Worship the real God. Only he is fully in control. So we're back in the book of Isaiah today. Again, um, we're back in chapter 41 and 42. 
So if you haven't been with us, we have been going through the first part of Isaiah whenever I preached this past year. Last time we left Isaiah chapter 2 and jumped to the second half of the book, and we went through Isaiah chapter 40. And if you remember, the book of Isaiah can be split into two parts, two major parts. You know, part 1 talked about the coming judgment for Israel's rebellion and also God's judgment of all the other nations. And part 2, starting from chapter 40, went through last time, Isaiah shifts to speak about the comfort of a hope of the promised salvation after, after this judgment. So last time in, in chapter 40, Isaiah spoke of the hope of comfort that God's people can expect. In chapter 41 and 42 today, is Isaiah writing from the perspective of addressing the Israelite during the Babylonian exile, about the time after the exile, when the Persian Empire takes over the Babylonian Empire. Now today we'll see God revealing to Isaiah prophetically not only about what will happen, but will also address struggles that face the Israelites during their exile. One of the struggles that the Israelites face during the exile is that it seemed, it seemed like the Babylonian gods are more powerful and are in control when compared to the God of Israel. You know, these, these gods or idols that the Babylonian worship seem to make the Babylonian nation more powerful than God's people. It seemed that way because they are, at that moment, controlling and ruling over God's people. Today, in our passage, God through Isaiah answers this particular question. Are these idols and nations that worship these idols more powerful than God? Are these idols and, and the nations that worship these idols, idols more powerful than God? And the answer comes in three parts, which will also form the outline for us today. Number one, false idols are nothing. False idols are nothing. It's from chapter 41, verse 21 to 29. And number two, the real God is incomparable. The real God is incomparable. From chapter 42, verse 1 through 9. And number three, sing praise in worshiping the real God. Sing praise in worshiping the real God. Chapter 42, 10 through 17. If you have your Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 21. And that is where we'll start today. The passage is also printed in the bulletin for us. And so because we have, you know, a long passage again, you know, it will be helpful to have the passage open so you can kind of follow along. So let's dig into it. Our first section, false idols are nothing. As we start in chapter 41, verse 20, uh, chapter 41, verse 21, the scene is like a courtroom. You know, the scene is like a courtroom with God asking the idols or the nations that worship these idols. God asked them, God asked them to prove their power in comparison to God. So let me read for us Isaiah 41, starting in verse. 21. Set for your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, 
or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Let's take a pause here. In verse 21, we, we understand that this is the Lord speaking. It is the Lord God challenging other gods or other nations that believes in their gods. Verse 23 there says that we may know that you are God. God challenges them to bring proofs. It is interesting that God says, bring proofs to us. Notice he said, tell us three times in verse 22 and 23. Us here, I think, is referring to God and his people, the descendant of Jacob or the nation of Israel. How can these quote-unquote gods prove that they have power and are fit to be gods? The Lord says simply, first, tell us how things are created. Verse 22 says, tell us the former things, what they are, how they came to being. And then he says, then, tell us the future. Verse 22 continues, tell us the outcome and declare to us the things to come, things in the future. Verse 23 says, tell us what is to come hereafter, or what is to come in the future. The Lord says, if you are gods, surely you can at least tell us the history from creation to the end. Well, this, this kind of, you know, I take it as a mocking tone, seems to be even stronger in the second half of verse 23. The Lord says, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. To me, it sounds like, it sounds like do something, do anything, so that we should fear you that we should be dismayed or should be terrified. Now, these false gods or false idols obviously are not able to, to provide a case or even, even give an answer. You know, this causes the Lord God to issue the verdict in, in verse 24. He says, you are nothing. Not only that, your work is less than nothing. An abomination or, or, or disgust is a person or the nation that chooses these false idols. When compared to God, these idols are nothing. They can't do anything so that their work is less than nothing. And why would anyone choose an idol over the Lord God? That's the question. It's, it's, it's worthwhile for us to reflect for a moment here. You know, what, what are these gods or these idols for us today? And we will read later that these gods are referred to as carved idols and metal images. They are things created by man instead of the creator God himself. Maybe for most of us, we find it silly that someone would actually think these carved statues or painted images actually have power and should be worshipped. I mean, we know that there are temples and idols that you know, many of our families worship. We sometimes dismiss them as just cultural, you know, not really religious, or maybe just, you know, ignorance, something in the past, not modern. 
But what about us? What about us, a modern generation living here in this city, Shanghai? I believe we still worship idols, but just disguised in different forms. And so what are, what, are, what are some of these disguised idols we think have power where you worship over the Lord God himself today? Well, let me just suggest one, one of these modern idols, and we call them wealth. Now how, how, how could wealth be an idol? Do we, do we think wealth has power over God? Does a wealthy person who does not know God seem more powerful than a poor person who does know God? Do we trust wealth more than we trust God who can give and take away that wealth? And do we think having wealth is a sign of success and gives us status and security to make us feel that we are in control? If we don't believe that wealth could be an idol, just, just ask a non-believer who, who, who owns a home here in Shanghai. What does the home mean to them? You know, I think if, if they're honest, many of them will say it provides security. And I'm afraid even many believers believe wealth is more important in providing earthly security than God. When we believe wealth can provide what God cannot, it has become an idol instead of a tool that God has given to us to use for his kingdom. An indication to help us identify with if, if wealth has become an idol is to ask if our security and joy is tied to wealth. Do we feel more secure or insecure or more happy and less happy depending on how much money or or possession we have. Wealth can change, but God does not change. Wealth is created, it is man-made, so we should use it, but not worship it. Well, there certainly are many more potential idols for us, like self-image, relationship, or success. These may not be bad thing in it, of itself, but if we choose to trust them to save us or to satisfy us over trusting God, his word is brutally honest. It is an abomination. It is simply a disgusting choice to choose these idols over God. So why should we choose God? Let's continue in our passage. Let's continue in verse 25. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as a mortar, as potter treads clay, who declared from the beginning what we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Who, when I ask, gives an answer? Behold, they are all a delusion. Their, work, their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So here comes God's answer. While the false 
God cannot tell us the things to come. God says, I'm going to tell you what will happen. Verse 25 is God prophesying through Isaiah that the Medo-Persian Empire is going to conquer the Babylonian Empire and will end Israelites' exile. In verse 25, the one from the north is talking about the Medes, which is to the north of them. And from the rising of the sun or from the east, is talking about the Persians. We know from history, Cyrus the Great united the Medes and the Persians into the Medo-Persian Empire, or more simply known as the Persian Empire. History played out as God has predicted, is shown as clear proof that he is the real God. Verse 26, the Lord again points to the failure of these false gods to declare beforehand what is going to happen so people could say he's right. In contrast, the Lord God was there from the beginning and will still be there at the end. In Isaiah 44, 6, God says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. And we read in Revelation 22, 13, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, that he is the eternal God. When we continue to verse 27 of our passage, behold, here they are. Now God here is referring to the Persian Empire, which God uses to bring the Israelites out of exile. The word herald, there in verse 27, means an official messenger. You know, Isaiah is that herald, that messenger, bringing the good news that Israelites are going home to Jerusalem from their exile in a foreign land. Let me take an aside thinking about this idea of a herald, a messenger. You know, brothers and sisters and, and believers here, are we being heralds of good news? God has made known to us the good news of a way to our eternal home, a way that is made through Jesus Christ. Are we being a herald, being a messenger in delivering this news, delivering to the world around us? A herald is not responsible for whether or not someone will listen or, or, or even believe in this news, but a herald is responsible for delivering, for declaring and proclaiming this news. Now, this coming week is a good opportunity to be a hero. When you go back to the office or are with families or friends this next week, tell them. Tell them that this past Sunday was Christmas and ask them, can I tell you? Can I tell you what Christmas really means? It will be a good opportunity to be a hero of good news. Let's look back at our passage. In verse 28, God, in verse 28, God says, idols have no answer. In verse 21, 29, they are all a delusion, or they are false, and they are not real. Their works are nothing. Their image has no substance, like an empty wind. Idols are delusion. They are false gods, and they are nothing. 
You know, after this court scene challenging these false idols, we're left with the conclusion that false idols are nothing. They're simply powerless. So let's continue to our second section. The real God is incomparable. The real God is incomparable. So now it is God's turn to set forth his case of being the real God. That he is incomparable to the false idol because he has a plan for his people and he can answer questions that the false idol could not answer. So let's pick up from chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift out his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland wait for his law. Thus says, the, thus says God the Lord, who created heaven and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those walk, who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Not only does the Lord God has control of what is to come, He shares His plans with everyone. Verse 9 says, Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So not only has He fulfilled promises in the past, but He also tells the nations, his plans for the future. You know, going back to verse 1, we see this plan, that God will use his chosen servant to bring forth justice to the nation and to establish justice on earth. You know, we'll come back to this idea of justice in a moment. You know, let's focus on, on the servant first. You know, let's look at what are some characteristics of this of this chosen servant. First, the servant is the delight of God. Verse 1 says, In whom my soul delights. Servant is a delight of God. And then secondly, the servant has God's spirit. Verse 1 again says, I have put my spirit upon him. The servant has God's spirit. And number three, the servant is humble and meek. It says in verse two, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. The servant is humble and meek. And number four, the servant is faithful and will defend the weak so they are not broken or snuffed out. It says verse three there. 
And lastly, number five, the servant will be steadfast. The servant will be steadfast, will not grow faint, will be discouraged. Verse four. So who is the servant? Let me read for you from Acts chapter three, verse 13. In the first century, the apostle Peter said this to the Jewish people. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorify his servant, Jesus. The servant was fulfilled in Jesus. When Peter and John and James were praying on the mountain with Jesus, Luke 9, verse 36, Luke 9, verse 35 says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus is God's chosen one. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see that Jesus has God's Spirit resting on him and has God's delight. He is well pleased with Jesus. And finally, Matthew 12 actually quotes our passage today saying Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah. Let me read for you starting Matthew 12, 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he bring justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. We see Matthew actually explain that the nations and the coastline are through his quoting of the Old Testament. That they are referring to the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, people like us, who are far away in the coastlands. Let's again take a pause and just, let's just marvel at these characteristics of Jesus. The beloved Son of God, having the same essence as God, filled by His Spirit, You can look back at verse 1 to 4 again. Jesus was chosen by God to be the servant, to to humble himself, to be born as a human baby, fully God, yet fully man. What kind of God would do this? None of the man-made idols would purposely be made low like this. This is simply inconceivable and incomparable that God would exalt humbleness and meekness. Now, Jesus came to defend the weak and to bring home the lost in the most unexpected way. Faithfully obedient to God's plan and steadfastly accomplishing God's will through the cross. Jesus is 
God's chosen servant. Now that we know the servant is Jesus, we need to understand why. Why did God choose him to bring forth justice? What of all the things God could do, did he choose justice? You see, true justice demands that humans had to be punished and separated from the holy God because of our sin and our wickedness. If you know Israel, God's chosen people's history, they were supposed to be faithful to God. Yet, despite God's discipline and even judgment like putting them in exile, they still could not hold up their end of the covenant with God to be faithful. So Jesus was God's chosen servant to bring forth justice by first satisfying God's justice. Satisfying God's justice. What does that mean? It means Jesus' first coming as a baby was for the ultimate purpose of dying on the cross to pay for people's sin. God's justice demands punishment for wrong, for sin, and for rebellion. So Jesus took on human form and lived a sinless life so that his death could bring forth justice in the sense of paying the penalty of people's sin and satisfying God's justice. Friends here that are not yet believers, you might ask, why? Why should I care about this? Why should I care about Christmas that is celebrating Jesus being born as a baby but ended up dying on a cross? How can we celebrate death anyways? Well, you should care because you are created by God for a relationship with Him. You can search everywhere to try and fill that desire for satisfaction, but you will not be satisfied. And those things will not satisfy. Everything else we use to fill that longing for God is what we call idols. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus' death on the cross is not the end of the story. Jesus is God. After satisfying the payment for our sin, he was resurrected, defeating death because he lived a sinless life. And the Bible tells us anyone repenting of our sin, especially the, thing, the sin of thinking that we don't need God and trusting in Jesus' payment on the cross for us, we will be justified by Jesus' righteousness, being able to stand right with God. And we will be, in, we will be able to enjoy forever the relationship with God that we are created for. This is why Christmas is worth celebrating. This is why Jesus being the chosen servant dying to satisfy God's justice is important. It demonstrates God's great love for us being the real Messiah, the real Savior, and to give us real hope. When we go back to our verses, there is a second way God has planned for justice, not just to be brought forth, but to be established. Verse 4 says, establish justice in the earth. And that is in Jesus' second coming. That when he comes again, he will be the perfect righteous king to judge justly. If you remember from our previous sermon, the Bible tells us that Jesus will come again to reign on earth for a thousand years. During that reign, he will rule 
with justice. And all people from all the corners of the earth will come and seek his wisdom and seek his justice. So God has clearly revealed his plan. Since what he said about Jesus has been fulfilled, it should give us great confidence in this God that his promise for everlasting life through Jesus is true also. So let's go back to verse 5. Chapter 42, verse 5. With, this, with a rhetorical question, God answered the challenges that he gave to, to the idols. Verse 5 is a summary of Genesis 1. God created the heavens. God created the earth and everything on it. God created man and gave them the spirit of life. God is utterly incomparable to any creation because he is the creator. He's able to keep his promise because, he, because of his power as the creator. Verse 6 says, The servant is given as a covenant for the people. Jesus now represents the people in their covenant with God and able to help his people keep the covenant. Verse 7, Jesus is the light to the nations to open the eyes of the blind. Not only does that refer to his miraculous healing of a blind man, but also giving light to those that are spiritually blind, those that do not know their need of God. And not only that, Jesus also sets the prisoners free, free from the dungeon of death and the darkness and the entrapment of sins. Now, this is God's great work as compared to idols' work, which are accomplishing nothing. Why does God do all this? Verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Now God is doing this for his own glory. If the Lord is a real God, then we can't expect anything less. In fact, the Lord is the only God because there is no other. And if he is the only real God, then he is incomparable. All other powers in this world still pale in comparison. The real God is incomparable. And he proves it by making his plan known and causing them to be completed. So the question for us is, do we see this in God? Do we see these characteristics that makes God incomparable to all others? When we pray, do we pray about what makes God incomparable? And if we truly grasp who this real God is, the next section should be our response. So let's move on to our last section. Sing praise in worship. Sing praise in worship. This last section speaks of the proper response to the only incomparable eternal God. If we truly grasp who God is, our response should be worship. So let's pick up our passage again from chapter 42, verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastland and their inhabitants, 
let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirred up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry out all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry out the pools. And I will lead the blind in the way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who says to metal images, you are our gods. Well, the proper response to God is to sing praise to Him. Sing praise to Him. But why does verse 10 says, sing a new song? What is so different about God that requires a new song? And what is different is the new revelation that God gave about this chosen servant. The greatness of this new revelation of a servant that can accomplish the work of bringing justice to the nations and that and establishing justice in the earth is far-reaching. Verse 10 mentions praise from the end of the earth, including the seas and mountains, the coastland, which we have mentioned represents far regions. Talks about deserts and cities. Also mentioned Kedar, which are nomads of the Arabian desert, and Selah, which is a Moabite town. The significance of these Names is that they are former enemies of God. But even they, they will also join in celebration and praise of God eventually. God wants all people to rejoice in His triumph and His glory. An amazing picture of people all over worshiping Him. Now friends, do we only praise God when we're here on, on Sundays? You know, notice from verse 10 to 12, the exhortation is to praise, to lift up their voice, to sing for joy, to shout, to declare. You know, there is an outward expression of this praise. You know, I think this is a good practice for us also throughout the week. You know, take, take, take your bulletin home and sing the songs that are in it. You know, maybe we said we can't remember the melody. You know, you can look it up online and sing, sing along to a recording. Maybe you say, well, I, I can't really sing. That's okay, too. You don't have to. You can lift up your voice and read the lyrics out loud. Or even just pick a psalm, you know, and, and read it out loud to declare it. You know, I can suggest to you Psalm 145. You know, psalm 145 is a psalm of praise to God. You know, I think... When we praise God, it lifts our spirit and puts us in the proper posture of worship before the Lord. 
And as we move to the last few verses, we see again that it is the Lord who will bring about this praise. That the Lord is mighty, that he is vigorous, and he is powerful. Verse 13 says, he is like a warrior committed to victory against his foes. Verse 14, likened the waiting to be delivered at the proper time, like a woman in labor waiting for the baby to come at the proper time. The long time there could be referring to the Jews waiting to be delivered from their exile. That it feels like a long time to them. They could also be referring to his people waiting to be delivered from this world of sin and death. Verse 15 says, No obstacles, no obstacles can stand in God's way. Not mountains or hills, not land or waters, nothing. Nothing can stand in God's way. Verse 16 says, God will lead and guide his people. Not blindness, nor darkness, nor rough places can keep them from being what God has designed his people for, which is to praise him and to enjoy his presence. God has designed his people to praise him and enjoy his presence. I know some of us feel like we can't see our future. We feel blind or, or maybe in the dark. Many of us are also in, in, in rough places in our lives right now. I pray that these verses are, are encouragement and they're also a reminder that the Lord does not forsake his people, that he is fully trustworthy because he has proven himself to be the real God. Verse 17 ends showing how foolish it is to trust idols and other false gods, that those who trust idols and false gods will be put to shame. So don't worship idols. Instead, sing praise to the incomparable eternal God. Sing praise and worship of the real God. Well, we should conclude. Let's circle back to the question we asked at the very beginning. What are we supposed to take out of this sudden change in COVID policy? What are we supposed to learn out of the sudden loss of control of COVID? Well, we're supposed to be reminded from our situation that there is only one God who is truly in control. So we need to worship and trust in the real God. Not any idols that are made by man, but the Lord God who is the creator of everything. The incomparable eternal God who will yield praise and worship to no other. WSBC. What better way than to be reminded on this Christmas day that because we like the nations will fail to turn to worship the real God. God has provided the new covenant through Jesus. Born as a baby on Christmas to die on the cross, satisfying God's justice, taking the punishment for our sins and the nation's sins. And for those that will repent and believe in Jesus, now, now, when we realize that sudden change in our heart, realizing we can never control our lives, yielding that control to Christ, who is trustworthy and able, it is now we are free to worship the real God. The real, incomparable God who is eternally 
in control. So Merry Christmas. May we be reminded of this lesson and long for Christ's return because the real God has promised his return and the real God is in control. So what is the lesson again? Our lesson for today is this. Worship the real God. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for being the only real God. You are the incomparable eternal God who is the beginning and the end. We thank you. We thank you for making a way for us to be home with you through Jesus Christ. As we continue to ponder the, the mystery of Jesus coming as a human baby on Christmas so many, so many years ago, Help us to long, to long in expectation of Jesus' second coming as King to establish justice on earth. Happy birthday, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.